Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode 159. On today's show, Donna and I are joined by Karen Compton, a Los Angeles-based business consultant, business owner, and podcast host. As the principal at A3K Consulting, Karen oversees a team of professionals to help clients in the AEC industry grow and improve their businesses, applying strategy, business planning, education, training, and recruitment. Her vodcast, Breaking the Silence of Design, started just two months ago with co-host Gabrielle Bullock, Director of Global Diversity at Perkins and Will Architects, as a platform to address the uncomfortable conversations around race and inequality in the AEC industry. Karen, thanks so much for joining us today. I am grateful to be here. Thank you for asking me. So uh, in our conversation today, I'd like to focus on two topics. Most importantly, I'd like to talk about the work you've been doing with your podcast or vodcast, as as you call it, because <laughs> primarily uh, video, where you and your co-host Gabriel uh, Bullock address issues of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in our industry. I'd also like to touch on your work at your practice, A3K, and how you've been navigating your own practice and advising your clients during this especially challenging year. But before we get into that, let's just kind of step back a little bit, learn a little bit about about you. Where did you grow up? I actually am a native of Southern California. Can you believe it? <laughs> no, you don't, you don't find too many of those no, here. No, you don't. <laughs> no, I'm one of a few handful of people who can literally say I was born here, grew up here. I actually grew up in Baldwin Hills, which is kind of close to Culver City for some of your listeners who may not know. And uh, my parents still reside there to this day. And so I am a native Angelina, went to public school my entire public school life, and then went to Mount St. Mary's University. Now it's called Mount St. Mary's University. It was previously called Mount St. Mary's College and uh, got an undergraduate degree in chemistry. Hmm. So chemistry, like how <laughs> how did you go from chemistry to yeah. working in, in uh doing what you do in the architecture, engineering, construction field? So I love analysis. I love data. I love information. And I literally ended up going to study chemistry because of a summer program called Mr. Wizard. And it just allowed you to blow up all these interesting and amazing things. And Mm -hmm. at that point, I just decided this is great. I'm going to go and study chemistry. It never occurred to me, what would I actually do with it? I realized I was not built to be a researcher. I wasn't the kind of person who could go and sit in the lab all day long. That's just not how I was wired. And so when I graduated, the college and career placement people sat down and they said, you know, there's a we've got some great opportunities for you. Would you consider ever working in you know, aerospace manufacturing? And at that time, Hughes Aircraft was a very busy, uh, bustling organization in El Segundo. Most people don't even remember that it was there. They had at their height some 20,000 employees. And so I went to go work at Hughes Aircraft. And I began as a process engineer studying radar system. And I was in, actually in charge of radar systems uh, for a long time. And then I thought, this is just not the kind of thing that I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds pretty cool. You know, it, it started out kind of interesting. It kind of started out as, you know, you get out of college and you're just grateful to find a job, which I'm sure a, a number of young people can relate to. And I thought, I don't really have any experience. Here's an opportunity for me to develop some experience. And so I that's exactly what I did. And I found that it was very much the federal government. <laughs> Um, which is challenging in and of itself. And so I made a career decision, which, and that one career decision really ultimately set me down a path of what I call designing backward. I left Hughes Aircraft, I believe around 1990, oh my gosh, must've been 93, 94. And I went to work for an environmental engineering company and I did uh, soil and groundwater testing and loved it, absolutely loved it. I loved the idea of looking at and cleaning up soil and groundwater and trying to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And around that time, unfortunately, and uh, especially in California, the environmental regulations really were fairly weak, unfortunately, and they started to collapse. And I had clients who had leaking underground fuel tanks and all kinds of 
terrible things that had contaminated both soil and groundwater. And they had told me it was cheaper for them to pay the EPA penalty than it was for them to clean up the mess they made. And not only was that heartbreaking, but it was kind of like my first reality check as a young adult to realize that not everybody is on the same page, Mm -hmm. that there is a business decision that people ultimately make that sometimes weighs out over what I thought should be done was right or wrong. And so the environmental industry at that particular time really kind of collapsed and it collapsed for a number of years. And at that point, I had already done a hazardous waste closure at uh, Fort Huachuca. I had already decommissioned a couple of army bases. And I thought, okay, there's really not a lot of future here for me. What am I going to do? And a colleague said to me, well, why don't you go work for a construction company? And I was like, well, why would I do that? (laughs) And they said, well, you know, you have so much knowledge and information about how to clean up soil and groundwater. I'm sure that that might be useful. And, you know, when you're young, Yet again, very little experience, right? You look at an opportunity and you say, okay, well, you know, why not? And so I went to work for a general construction company and lo and behold, they really didn't know anything about at that time, you know, cleaning up brownfield sites and soil, you know, soil remediation and water remediation. And so I stayed at a construction company and I thought, this is is okay. This is pretty good experience, but I didn't really, I wasn't in love with construction. I enjoyed understanding the process and how buildings come together, but I wasn't passionate about, oh, I want to go out and, and build a building. And so around that time in my career, you know, looking for opportunities to advance and to learn, a colleague came to me and said, well, have you ever considered going to an engineering company? And I thought, well, well, that sounds kind of intriguing. I've already worked for a construction company, you know, worked for an engineering company. That would be great. That kind of rounds out my experience. And so I did that and it was fantastic. I was like, oh, this is great. You know, I have rounded out a perspective that includes mechanical engineering, structural engineering, construction. I thought this was absolutely fantastic. (laughs) And then somewhere, the comedy in all of this is that I was having a great time. I loved my job, loved my career. And then I got a phone call from a congresswoman who's now since deceased. And she said, I think you should apply to be the small business development director for the Metropolitan Water District. And I was like, oh, why why would I do that? Uh Uh-huh. And she said, I think you have good perspective. You know, you would be able to kind of use your analytical skills and speak to the engineering challenges and speak to the construction challenges. And I was like, wow, you know, I don't know that that would necessarily be interesting. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm encouraging you to go and do this. And I thought, okay, you know what? Young and dumb, I'll just go for the experience. They'll never hire me. So I went and I, did the interview and I, you know, answered all their questions. And we talked about the challenges of small business and challenges of engineering and the challenges of construction. I thought, oh, this is a fantastic conversation. And at the end, I said, you know, thank you very much for your time and went to the elevator, stood at the elevator lobby. And I thought, okay, well, I learned something. And the human resources manager comes after me and he says, oh, no, 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 wait, go sit down over there. I'll have an offer letter for you in about 15 minutes. Mm. And I was like, really? Wow. Right? It was great. It was at a time where I had an opportunity to kind of be thoughtful about engineering and small business and the challenges that they face. And at the time, we actually had um, race-based procurement policies. We actually had a minority business program, not a small business program. So this was certainly in the, this was before Prop 209. And had an opportunity to kind of really understand design at that point and engineering in particular and construction now from the through the lens of of the owner. And I thoroughly enjoyed the perspective, but I didn't understand. I didn't I shouldn't say I didn't understand. I didn't enjoy being a public servant. It's really difficult. and, And God bless people who work for, you know, public agencies and institutions. It's very difficult to impact change, to really, truly impact change. When you have systems and processes that have been in place for so long, it's very hard to move that needle. And so I was there for, I want to say, 
another four or five years in my career. And I thought, this is great. I now have a perspective as an owner. I have a perspective um, from an engineering and small business perspective, from a general construction perspective. And at that point, I realized being a public servant was not my career path in life. I really wanted to go back to the private sector. And I thought, gosh, the only thing I haven't done is architecture. <laughs> Literally designed backwards. And I tell people that all the time. I tell you, know, my life was designed backwards. <laughs> and so I ended up in architecture, uh, which is, and I, I spent the last, the last years of my career as a before starting my practice in the architecture space and truly understanding and developing an appreciation for design. Because as an analytical person, I was always, you know, more concerned about the functionality of it, not necessarily the experience of the user within the space. And of course, that was a very naive perspective. There's the intersectionality of the two that requires you to have not just the functionality of it, but what is the experience of the user and who creates that experience? And so I developed a great appreciation for architecture. I say that I've done, I've touched every aspect of the design profession except interiors. And I have a girlfriend, really close girlfriend who's in interiors. And I said, well, all you do is choose paint and carpet, which that just makes her mad. And, <laughs> uh, right. And I, and I tell her all the time, you really create the experience, the feeling of a space. And so I deeply appreciate interior design and, and in, the interior practice. It's just not a, a piece that I chose to go and work for before I started my own practice. So, yes, I designed my life backwards. <laughs> Wow. That's quite a story. I was not expecting such an interesting story leading you up to the the formation of your practice. I mean, that's incredibly what a what an incredibly diverse yeah. collection of experiences to bring to the kind of uh practice that you run, which I guess maybe you can you can uh, tell us a little bit about what A3K does. So, we've really primarily focused on strategic planning business planning, and organizational growth strategies exclusively for the architecture, engineering, and construction environments. And so the thing that I learned most about this profession, and I, I lump it into a collective, both the design side, the engineering side, and the construction side, is that through my experience, I learned that we spend a lot of time focused on the design. We spend a lot of time focused on the engineering, the calculations. We spend a lot of time figuring out budgets and schedules, but we don't often spend a whole lot of time focusing on or thinking about the business, the business of architecture, the business of engineering. And so when I finally left the last architectural practice that I work for, I decided I really wanted to focus on the business of architecture, the business of engineering, and really help and focus presidents, partners, C-suite executives on the development of impactful strategies to help them foster growth, promote retention, and grow the practice. Because I felt if we could be better businesses, as small businesses, as large businesses, medium businesses, as a practice, we will sustain ourselves. And that's what we really primarily focus on. Our clients are all leaders or executives within the architecture, engineering, construction environments. And they come to us because they are usually at some crossroads in their organization. They're either trying to grow a market they're trying to get out of a market. Right now, a lot of them are trying to come up with strategies in the midst of COVID and in the midst of uh, social unrest, looking at what social and uh, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion look like from a corporate perspective, corporate responsibility. They've all come to that kind of intersection, and that's what usually prompts them to give us a call. The other, the other intersection usually is oftentimes they're at the place where they either want to transition their firm, either through an ownership transition or a leadership transition. And of course, that also requires some, some challenging and difficult conversations. Well, I think it's, it's kind of widely known that architects don't always make the best business people. So I'm sure, I'm yeah, sure your, your services absolutely. are very much, um, very much valued by your clients. Speaking of starting a successful business. What was it like for you starting a this this business? I mean, it's as as a fellow business owner, I know businesses is, is is not easy. It's it's difficult. But I mean, you're you're coming from the perspective of 
also starting a business as as a woman and as a woman of color. And those are both clearly difficult hurdles to get past, given the kind of lack of, of necessary change that we've made. Well, not only was it at the time challenging for those two reasons, it was also challenging because of the type of business that we started. I think if I had wanted to go down the path and hang out a shingle for a traditional business that someone understood, like engineering or architecture, yeah. it, it would have been a different road, right? Right. But my husband, bless his heart, uh, said to me, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I really just want to focus on the practice, the business side. And I said, but nobody will buy my services. And he looked at me and he said, it'll work out. And he turned around and walked away. <laughs> you know, in all the years we've been married, it's one of the few times I just really wanted to punch his lights out and just say, you know, what, are you kidding me? Like, I have this <laughs> idea. And your only your your only words to me are, oh, it'll work out. People will call you like and I really had to sit down and and utilize everything I had ever learned as a professional marketer, as a business person to not only put together the framework of what I envisioned as a business, but then to have to put together the value proposition around it to say that. Not only am I asking you to trust me in helping you build your business, I'm a small business owner and a woman of color, and I'm still going to be brave enough to step out here and do it. And my first, my very, very first client was Whittem Wine Cohen and WWCOT. I talked to, to Chet Whittem this morning and uh, was my very, 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 very first client. And I thank him to this very day. Wow. And you still have that client? Well, I don't have him as a client. He is now teaching architecture at uh, East Los Angeles College, I believe. And he is just a an amazing person. As you know, he, is, he used to be the former state architect uh, for California. But uh, he, he gave me my first opportunity as a consultant. And it was challenging because I kept thinking, Maybe I should just go get a job. But every single time I tried to go get a job, it was always some disastrous comical story. It was just a comedy. And I just thought, okay, this is the universe telling me I'm not supposed <laughs> to go get a job. I mean, one time I went, I went, I went for one job interview and a power pole fell across the 405 freeway and I was two and a half hours late. And then another time it, it was, there was a horrific car accident and I couldn't get there on time. And I just thought, okay, this is the universe telling me. <laughs> That that I need to just go with my my gut here and hang out a shingle. Yeah, yeah. you know it, it was challenging. So let me go back to back in time a little though to where you got on this path. You just sort of casually dropped into the conversation that you got a call from a congresswoman. How did the congresswoman know you? And I'm guessing this has a networking aspect to it. Uh, how did she know who you were? So this was actually really kind of interesting. I had done work for um, when I was at, uh, I was at a company that did water cleanup, groundwater removal or groundwater cleanup. And she had specifically called this particular company and said that she needed an engineer to come out and assess, assign fault basically for a floating oil plume that was in her district. Oh my. And she was very, very clear uh, when she spoke to the president that she needed a person of color mm -hmm. because her, because her community was a community of color mm -hmm. And that she really needed someone who could listen to what the community's concerns were, analyze um, what the situation was from a scientific perspective, and then give a recommendation as to what should be done. And so at that time, and still today, there really weren't a lot of African-Americans in the field, let alone in, in the firm that I was in. And so they, the regional vice president looked to the left and looked to the right and said, OK, kid, it's you. <laughs> and I was like, me? You know, what do I what do I know? <laughs> Like you're sending me out here, and he's like, "Yeah, here were the requirements. Yeah. You know, yeah. we we need yeah. a person of color to go into a community of color, and you've got two oil companies who are in this particular geography, and they can't really ascertain who's at fault, and there's some distrust. You need to try and figure this out." And I was like, "Okay, yeah. that sounds like a unreasonable expectation, but let's try this. You know, I, I feel like I have learned most of what I've learned through architecture through a sort of baptism by fire, exactly like that, where a boss has faith in me and they say, yeah, just you go do it, Donna, you can do it. <laughs> go, go do that. Let me know how it turns out for you. 
that's kind of how it felt. It kind of felt like, so, so I go down there and, you know, young and dumb and uh, I sit and I listen to everybody kind of gripe and grouse and all the rest of this. And we do all of our standard, we, you know, pull water samples and, and I went back to her and I said, okay, here's the reality. The reality is you have two oil companies and you do not have a marker in the oil that they manufacture. So there's absolutely no way for me to assign fault Mm -hmm. to this oil company over another. So if I were you, I would offer them a joint opportunity to remediate, find no fault in either, because you can't trace it back at this particular point in time. You can't trace it back to whose fault. And if you're really serious about this going forward, I would highly suggest that you introduce a piece of legislation that requires there be a marker of some sort unique marker within oil or light crude, sweet crude, so that if it does leak, you can go back and trace the owner. And she was satisfied with that as a solution. And I was satisfied with it as as a solution. And we parted company and I didn't see her for years. And then all of a sudden I got this phone call and I was like, wow, all I did was show up and give you good advice. And, and, (laughs) you know, I wasn't thinking anything of it. Right. And rest her soul. She's, you know, she, she passed away many years ago now, but I do believe at some point in time, she did try and introduce legislation to actually do just that, put a, make sure that oil companies do have markers within their oil production so that they can try and assign or find who has a leak because it would make all the difference in the world. And in this particular community, in the end, they did end up in, in a, uh, a joint cleanup effort. It's funny you say you and you started this conversation by saying you really had an have an analytical mind and you clearly do sort of coming up with this solution that is an analysis of all of the options. We don't have the option to assign blame. So how do we get the best outcome in, in analyzing that? But then you also clearly inspire trust in a lot of people. And I say this specifically because today I watched the Breaking the Silence of Design episode four with David Hart, who is your friend. And he is was uh, he I mean, getting into the conversation of the the current climate and social justice that uh, issues that we're facing. He was in the hot seat and he clearly trusts you with that discomfort, which I think is it's an amazing place for you as a business owner with the kind of consulting work you do that you can build that kind of trust in people that even though they're com- they're they're confused and uncomfortable and nervous, they have faith that you can you can bring them through it. You know the the crazy part to me in this business is that you spend a career, a lifetime building trust and you can destroy it in a moment. Something that you, you know, that you put so much time, energy and effort into. So what I have learned most from running my own practice is that you must not only engender trust, you must live it. You must live the credibility and the reliability of it Mm -hmm. and not play I gotcha games. So Mm -hmm. David and I have had a trust relationship for many years. We've also had some really great debates in the years that we've been colleagues. And like I said, in the, in the, in the video, uh, in the podcast, I worked with him when he first got to Steinberg, we came, I think we were maybe two weeks apart from each other, uh, at the time that we hired and, uh, we had great spirited debates around housing, around education access, but we came at it from different lived experiences, right? And so we developed a sense of trust around business. And then that sense of trust over years just matriculated to where it is now as friends and colleagues around really difficult conversations. So he was the first person to truly put himself in that seat. And I will be forever indebted because it was such, not just such an amazing conversation, um, but it was such a vulnerable conversation that so many people have responded to in ways that we never, ever expected, just ways that we never expected. Absolutely. It it, it was, go ahead, Paul, as a white man, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm meaning meaning that poor David was in that hot seat of, I'm a white man talking to two black women about these incredibly uncomfortable and difficult and challenging issues. So I thought it was enormously brave of him. And in a way, Paul, I feel like you're very brave to bring these same topics up with this podcast. Well, I thought that that episode, which was episode four of your podcast, was such an important episode because it really it really addressed the problem that I think exists right now where a lot of 
people are having such a difficult time recognizing their own racism, you know, even if they have always believed to not have any any type of racism as part of their their being. You know, it's it's a time right now where we need to recognize that, you know, I mean, as a white man, I've grown up in an environment where I've been given a lot of privileges and I have had a lot of opportunities. And it's it's very easy to get to a point in your life where you just you you don't think that anything has been anything has come as a as a result of those of those advantages of that that have just been embedded into our into our culture. And it was really great to see David Hart kind of come to a point of of realization through through your help, you know, in in recognizing that that the way that he has been running his business and just thinking about issues of race has been problematic, even though he's clearly a very good person, you know, and and he with very good intentions. But there is still much more to learn and much more to understand. What I thought was great about his conversation was him not just recognizing that it wasn't just enough to 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 do good. What needed to happen was that we need to do right that doing right is what's right for humanity. Yes, that line was so good. (laughs) Yeah, if we do right by humanity, then we recognize the, the fullness and the completeness of each person, regardless of their sexual orientation, their gender, or their color. And if we approach it from a human perspective, and I think that's what I so deeply appreciated about that. And he was very honest in saying, you know, what a lot of people have said to me privately, which is I didn't realize I had white privilege. And to yeah. tell you the truth, I'm embarrassed by it. Yeah. And yeah. I think he was brave and bold to sit there and say and just call it what it was that he recognized that he has it. And what's important now is what do you do with it? Yeah. Yeah. So let's step back a little bit. What, what, uh, you started this podcast, Breaking the Silence of Design, two months ago with, I, I believe she, she was, she was already your friend, Gabriel Bullock, who is the uh, director of global diversity at Perkins and Will. She's a, a partner there. What kind of sparked the, the uh, conception of this podcast? Probably about the 25th Zoom call and the 15th cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> really honest. About it. I mean, um, following the murder of George Floyd, Both she and I and a number of of, uh, African-American professionals were kind of inundated with a number of podcasts, um, vodcasts, webinars, listening series, town halls. And and she and I participated in, if not every single one of them, pretty close to it. And then there was this kind of moment where we literally were both on the last, whatever the last town hall was that we were on jointly at the time and said, okay, this is great. People have heard our stories. They understand our lived experiences. They've, I won't say they understand, they they empathize. They've heard a lot, but now the problem is what do they do with all that they've heard? What now? And so it was clear that when she and I looked at each other and said, "Okay, now what do we do? There is that famous line about, you know, we're always looking for them to fix something or they're going to do it. And we looked at each other and went, I I think we are they and we're the ones who are going to have to do something. What is it that we want to do? And I said, what do you feel about doing a vodcast? And she said, this is the kind of conversation we have to do face to face. It's not the kind of conversation that you can easily do on a Zoom because it really is about emotions and it is about connectedness. And mm-hmm. I had been watching Emmanuel Acho's Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man and, and realized it's very much an uncomfortable conversation. It's hard to do. And so we looked at ourselves and said, you know what? Are you in? And she said, I'm in. I'm 100% all in. And I was like, okay, I guess that means we're going to do this. And it was literally like the stars aligned. Um, I picked up the phone. I called another really close girlfriend of mine. And I said, I'm thinking about doing this vodcast. She's like, great. 
here's here's a couple of people that I think you should talk to from a production standpoint. And within about three days, we actually had a crew. We knew what we were going to talk about and we started taking questions. And that was the first step. And then the second step after that was I had sent a text message to to David and to a couple of other people privately. This is now probably a few, probably two weeks now after George Floyd was murdered. Maybe it was a week. I've lost track of time now. And I said, I want to understand, are you going to say something? And David responded, as he talked about in the podcast and said, you know, I might have gone a little bit too quick in the beginning and not come out with a statement, but we're, we're, we're going as fast as we can at this point and trying to understand. And then there were those who responded back and said, we, we can't say anything. And that was just crushing. I've devoted my entire career to this industry and to realize that everyone is not on the same page about humanity and not on the same page about this issue is really was just very, very challenging. And so Gabrielle and I came to it realizing everybody's not going to be on the same page. What our goal is, is to have uncomfortable conversations and dialogue that allows us to rethink firm culture. And if we can get to rethinking firm culture and building a pipeline of professionals, we'll be able to attract those young professionals and keep them engaged in the building and designing of communities that they live and have their own lived experiences. And so at that point, we were 100% all in. And we've recorded, um, by the end of this month, we will have recorded, I believe, 12 episodes. So going back to how you said that not everybody that you spoke to was on board to say something after after the, the killing of George Floyd, there was this outpouring of statements from individuals, businesses, organizations from all over the world, not, not just within the U.S., expressing commitments to improving the racial problems that clearly still exist. Do you feel like this has been an authentic expression of solidarity? I do. However, so it's a, it's a yes, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. I believe we are in a climate in which many people will respond for what they perceive as business reasons. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that wave or that issue du jour passes or moves, they too will move on. What I have hoped and believed with this is that this is, and Gabrielle uses the term more than I do, a kind of a cosmic reset to really, truly, introspectively look at how we design, how we build practices, how we include or not include people in conversations, and really try and work on inclusion, the inclusivity of it all, not just the diversity. And so there are some who are not necessarily, they don't necessarily want to go along and make that cosmic reset, if that makes any sense, Paul. Because as we talk about in the vodcast, part of racism is about power and control. Who has it? Who doesn't? Who has power? How do they use it? Who has money? Who makes the decisions? Who gets a seat at the table? Those are all issues that get wrapped up in and around color, ethnicity, gender, and oftentimes become very complicated in terms of creating inclusive cultures. Yeah. And I've, uh, one of the biggest challenges I think for companies is the realization that in order to make real change, they may need to sacrifice their, I guess, their bottom line to ensure that they're not nurturing relationships or practices that continue contributing to problems at the root of uh, systemic racism. And I think that's the biggest, uh, that, that's, that's, I mean, it, it, from what I've seen, that seems to be one of the biggest challenges. You know, it's one thing to say something, it's another thing to kind of take a hit and make those changes. So I would say that looking at your financial investment is at the top of the funnel. At the bottom of the funnel is just how do you function day to day? Let's let's start at the bottom of the funnel. Let's not even talk at the top of the funnel yet. Do do the do the employees that you have feel that they are included in the decision making process? 
do they feel that they have a voice? Is that voice heard or are they quieted voices? And those are more fundamental day-to-day issues that really don't impact your, your bottom line or your financial investment. As we go up the funnel and we talk about other things like making decisions about whether or not we pursue a certain market or market sector, yes, that may certainly change your business strategy or your financial focus. But from a day-to-day perspective, looking at how you practice through the lens of equity and inclusion does not necessarily have to impact your bottom line. It impacts your behavior and it may require you to look at how you promote, how you award and recognize the achievements and contributions of people. But as Donna Brazil said, I'm not asking you to get up. I'm just asking you to slide over a little bit. <laughs> Let me ask something that is, is it's not very well framed within my own head, so I may ramble a bit, but I'm 53 years old a woman in the, in the architecture field and a female friend of mine who's younger mentioned to me recently that that she feels like I've gotten to this level in my career where I don't I don't in some ways give a damn about things in the way I used to. And you and Gabrielle t- touched on this similarly in your one of the podcasts where you talked about when you're younger being very very careful about the language you use, the way you present yourself, if you hide your own, you know, the humor that you show with your friends versus what you show in the professional environment. And I find lately as a as an older woman in the architecture world in an office with younger people and in a field where I try to mentor younger people that I have let a lot of professionalism just go just fly out the window like I just don't care anymore right I'm not I don't have time for the very careful professional language and the wearing the business suit every day and I just I don't give a dang about any of that anymore (laughs) because I want the work to get done and I want people to have the humanity and the connection and the trust that we talked about. That's what matters. Does that make it harder, though, for someone like me, a white woman, when I just say I'm going to swear on the on the in the office because (laughs) I believe in being more relaxed around all of this? You know, how do we sort of draw a line between how does professionalism help us all to feel comfortable that we're speaking the same language and where does it inhibit us from that? So again, I think that's a culture issue because mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why, um, and I'll speak for myself, I won't speak for Gabrielle, but I think she did a really good job of speaking to this issue. Yeah. I believe it was in the first episode is that people of color, and it's not just not just people of color, younger people in, in, in particular, we're not in the power structure. Going back to what I had said earlier, we, mm-hmm. we don't have the money. We don't make the decisions. We don't have any money. And we're not in control of anything other than doing the work so that we get a check. Mm-hmm. Therefore, unless there is a culture that is created that allows me to bring my whole self to work, that allows and embraces me to express all of my ideas, the crazy ones, the good ones, the bad ones, and appreciates the perspective and the lived experience, I don't get a chance to bring my whole self to work. And for that reason, unfortunately, design or engineering can suffer Mm -hmm. because your community, your employees are only giving you part of who they really are. So if you really want to foster as a a white woman or a white man or what we really try and focus on is fostering culture, taking a real long step back mm-hmm. and asking yourself fundamentally at the, t- at the core tenets of it all, what is the culture that I am trying to create? And if the culture that I'm trying to create is an inclusive culture, inclusive of all types of experiences and voices, then how do I create that culture? Not create the rules, right. not create, right. not create, create the system. But what what is it that I want people to experience? And then I guess because of my analytical brain, go yeah. backwards, reverse engineer that, and then design the business that you want. Where most of us are right now, particularly with running a practice, many are you know, 20 years, 15 years. And so culture is set. It's already kind of determined which is why I believe in one of the episodes we said, look, we need to take a zero-based approach here to policy and practice and look at not just what are our policies as a company and does it align with the culture that we're trying to create, but what are the practices, the norms that we allow and accept in our day-to-day behavior that either do not allow for inclusivity 
or do not allow equity and deconstruct those. Right. And really, truly make it so that everything is able to be questioned, not judged, questioned. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part that's a little challenging. I think part of the reason why, especially younger people don't bring their whole selves to work is because they don't want to be judged. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And I think we mentioned at the beginning before we started recording that I mentorship has always been super important to me. And I I'm getting to where I'm starting to wonder if I am not mentoring people as well as I could be if I were to encourage them to try to be a little more professional in in certain ways. But I also think that we just need to get the work done. And if that means, as as I we talked about David's appearance on your podcast, if that means people are uncomfortable, we're going to have to to go through a little of that. But like you said, it's it's you know what are the what does the cultural practice of a firm allow and encourage? Does it encourage the dumb questions? Because that's the other thing I've been doing is I just say I don't mind looking like the fool, so I'm going to go ahead and ask the question that probably is on everyone else's mind also, and then usually it is. <laughs> You know, do we encourage people to go ahead and ask the, the the questions and and play be a little bit of the fool, but you're not being judged for it. You're just raising the question. Yeah, yeah. I think you will. We really have to encourage people who don't normally speak but are very thoughtful about yes. what are they th- what are your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so, particularly, this is particularly true for engineers. Oh, sure. Very, Absolutely. very, very task driven individuals. Yes. And so. Yeah. With them, I don't usually try and ask them from a, generally speaking, from an oral perspective to stand up and tell me something. I'll send it to them in an email or put it on a piece of paper and they'll write a lot. And so at least they are heard, but you're recognizing the mode in which a person communicates and, and respecting that not everyone, (laughs) you know, you have to look, everybody's not going to communicate orally because they're going to, they're not going to be comfortable. They're going to feel that they're being judged. So it might be better if you give them the same opportunity, but just say, you know what, put it on a piece of paper yeah. and send it yeah. to me. Yeah. And you don't even have to put your name on it, but just give me your ideas. Give me your thoughts. Let me know that you're in there. When you recognize the modalities in which people communicate and allow them to communicate in ways that are effective for them, you can allow quieted voices to be heard. You right. can allow shy people um, to ask questions and not feel defeated, or you can, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. go ahead and provide a safe space for people to ask the dumb question and, and not feel like they're going to be thought of as a fool because most people are kind of <laughs> thinking, I don't want to ask because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to yeah. But Uh, you get to be 50 something and you go, ah, who cares about that? You know, exactly. I just don't have time to deal with that. I just don't have time. Like, (laughs) can we just ask the dumb question? Yes. Can we cut through to the conversation and talk about the important things? (laughs) That happened to me this morning. I woke up in the middle of the night thinking about a a challenge that one of my clients has right now. And literally at 3.30 in the morning, I woke up, I couldn't go back to sleep. And I just called, I I called the architect and I said, I'm sorry, I have a really dumb question. (laughs) And she said, no such thing. And I yep. asked her the question and I said, I think you really need to rethink your approach based on the following information. She went, that's really a good idea. I think yeah. you're right. I'm like, okay, yeah. I wasted, I wasted my, my sleep because I stayed up from three 30 until seven o'clock waiting to talk to her. And she was like, yeah, that was, that was the right question. To ask. <laughs> you're good at this. You're clearly good at this at your business. You're clearly good at your business. <laughs> we, we have to encourage people to make to ask questions and and not be judged. And then we also have to create environments where people's ideas aren't judged. Right. And that to me is a huge responsibility for the profession. And if we, if we don't start to do that, I'm afraid that the younger generation of those interested in design are going to go and choose tech, you know, they're they're not going to choose architecture. They're going to choose some other field. And that would be a travesty for for architecture. Yeah, for all of us that inhabit the built world, which is pretty much all of us. <laughs> it would be a travesty. It would be, it it would would be, be. a complete travesty. So, Karen, I know this is not a, a simple question to answer, but what what would your advice be to businesses and individuals that have committed to making a difference back when everybody was was releasing statements? What What would you, be your advice to kind of maintain accountability to remain committed to those to those changes 
and to, you know, to ensure that the change will, will be ongoing. So let me first start by saying that's the definition of integrity. If you were bold enough to say something, then you need to be bold enough to follow through with it. And if you cannot do that, then that's the definition of integrity because people are looking to you for that commitment. You've made it now honor it. Now we're not asking you to cut your knees off and, you know, not be a profitable business or any of those things. Most people made very broad statements saying that they were in support of the humanity of people of color And my expectation, quite frankly, would be that they sit down and look at what you can realistically commit to achieve each year. We we didn't end we didn't end up in this situation overnight. And the end to racism is not a destination. It's a journey. And all of us need to go on this journey and each year, year by year, day by day, commit to being anti-racist and developing policies and practices that support that cultural behavior. So to me, it's not a complicated question because the answer is going to vary from from firm to firm based on size uh, to a certain extent, based on resources to other extents. But if we're really just starting at the basic look of practices, something, something as simple, Paul, is are we paying people equitably? If we put everybody's name into a hat or their position into a hat, forget their name, and do an equity study around pay, is it equitable? Is it the same for men as it is for women? Is it the same for people of color as non-people of color, just based on strictly on title and function? You know, basic things like that can be done. And that's what I'm hoping that that will happen, is that people will actually now live out that commitment by looking at what they can do that is actionable. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. And it's going to be different things for every, and like I said, it's going to be different things for every firm. You know, Perkins & Will is is further along in the paradigm than most firms because Gabrielle's been leading the charge for such a long period of time. So mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of contrast a firm like that of that size and resource to somebody who might, say, just have a 15 or 20 person firm. Does it necessarily have or views themselves as having the structure or the, the, the knowledge to be able to make change. And that's part of the big role of the, of the vodcast is to say, look, we are a source for change. We are a source for you to venture questions, ask your questions, come up with ideas, develop what is actionable for you. And all of us collectively go down a road, go down a journey. Are there any, books that you recommend uh, people read, especially maybe within the AEC industry? Oh, there are so many. Are, are we talking about kind of in relative perspective to this, uh, to, to race and racism in particular? Exactly. I have kind yes. of a list. Uh, my favorite right now is uh, Angela Davis, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's probably one of my favorites because it explores the intersectionality between the freedom movement for African-Americans, as well as equality for women. So it explores that intersectionality in a way that I think is really important. The Color of Law is probably one of Gabrielle's favorites. She has cited that one, as well as White Fragility. And I believe we've included them as resources at the end of, I believe it's episode three. We've kind of given people a reading list. Probably another one of mine, my favorites is The Hate You Give, which is actually a movie and kind of explores uh, societal racism. So those are probably some of my picks. I haven't read Cast yet, C-A-S-T-E, but I understand from a a really close colleague of mine who's a professor at a school of architecture, she's reading it and she finds it to be quite insightful in terms of the social economic impacts. So that's probably another one that I would recommend. I really love this metaphor you used of the funnel and sort of how can uh, businesses take the the little, you know, the lower end of the funnel, the sort of of day to day interactions and just these smaller sort of steps. But then the and then that the funnel leads up to the bigger financial stability of the of the business enterprise. But this also that that's so to me, so tied with the notion of personal integrity and and doing good for all of humanity. Those those things are so tied together that I just feel like so many businesses are seeing and will continue, I hope, to see the value of having these conversations and 
behaving in a way that is not just about, as you said in that very early story, you know, assigning blame and get and then walking away scot free without or, or or paying the fine and not having to worry about what you're actually doing to the community, right? I mean, I think that that in terms of business, you as Paul has asked about books and ways that people can start to have these conversations. I really like this idea of the the filter, the funnel, sort of. Okay, slowly we're going to build our way up. But what I think is also going to happen is that um, clients are also going to start driving oh, this. So absolutely. absolutely. We, we're actually we've already actually um, interviewed and had an amazing conversation with the city manager for the city of Glendale, Yasmin Beers. And for those who may not know, the city of Glendale is the fourth largest city in the county of Los Angeles. I believe it's tomorrow or day after tomorrow. By the time you tape this or release this, uh, we're actually having a conversation with the deputy mayor for the city of Los Angeles, awesome. because the expectation is not just that people like David are going to take a seat and try and impact firm culture and awareness, but it's that owners and agencies, because of their own commitment and integrity to their consumer or to the the citizen or the bondholder, they're starting to look at their practices and they are viewing the relationship between architecture and themselves as a partnership. Mm-hmm. And so they are going to be expecting that us as partners are going to be coming along. So we there can be some firms that choose to not go, but then there may also be larger ramifications down the road because there are cities, counties, municipalities that are looking very closely at this and, and are saying, okay, we have a responsibility right. and that's going to play out in procurement. It's going to play out in economic development and and everybody's going to have to kind of come along. Yeah. And I think they will. I have to stay optimistic that they will. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. Everybody's going to run the race at a slightly different pace. Oh, but 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 everybody's going to run the race, you yeah. know. So yeah. there will be some who will be at the top of the pack and they will be leading. And what I hope from those who choose that position to lead, lead is that they they do what rate that what runners do they set the pace they're the ones that are out at front um, determining and defining the direction and setting the pace and the narrative then there will be those that kind of just keep up with the pack and they're going to yeah. do whatever the pace is set at the top okay great and then there are those who are just at the back end of the race who are just saying hey I just want to make sure I get out here and run my my 5k. I don't need to finish. I just need to get out here and, and, and show myself that I can do it. So everyone's not going to come along at the same rate, at the same pace. Um, and everybody's not going to run the same race. I think my expectation, my hope is that those who were bold enough to make a statement um, are the ones who are going to remain at the top of the pack in determining how we go as a profession, setting the pace, moving the needle. And really allowing us to see impactful change. That's my hope. So I do remain optimistic. Karen, I mean, this has been quite a year. I mean, beyond the the this, the uh, ongoing struggle for racial equality and the amplification of of uh, that that issue in in the last few months, we've also been uh, you know worldwide going through this very difficult time dealing with COVID and the resulting uh, impacts that it's had on the economy and jobs especially here in in this country. Um, Can you talk a little bit about about how you've seen this affecting your clients in in the architecture and and engineering industry and what kind of advice you've been giving them to to help navigate these challenging times? Wow. Let's break that up into two different questions. (laughs) The first part of the question was, what advice have I been giving? I think the first advice has really been to focus on acknowledging the feelings and the experiences of the people that work for you. We don't make widgets. Um, We are a profession of people that are truly connected to their work and the passion of architecture, but that also means that many of them are emotional beings. And my first advice was to make sure we take care of our people. Make sure that they are heard. Make sure that they understand. 
that that we understand them, that we are not just focused on how to make a business more profitable, Mm -hmm. but focused on their well-being, not just handing them a laptop and saying, here, you're going to switch to being remote, (laughs) but now you're isolated. How are you doing? I've stopped asking people, how are you doing? And I've started asking them, how are you being? Um, Mm, Nice. Because we're all doing the same. (laughs) I talked to my mother right before this call and she's like, yeah, it's all the same. But how are you being is something different that that really speaks to the mindset. And are you connecting to the mindset of your employees? That has been my first line of defense, Paul. My second has been as they try and navigate this issue, in particular, the issue of justice and race and racism. And, and we're we're blessed as a as a company. Um, to provide advice to a wide variety of firms, small, large, national, international firms. After we tell them to take care of their people, the things that we've said is, now let's take a long step back and let's look at what is corporate social responsibility so that this is not a flash in the pan initiative that comes and goes according to whoever's in control at any given point in time. But what do you believe as a company? What is part of your fabric? Not your culture, but what is your corporate social responsibility? And so we spend a lot of time talking about that because while other industries have been clear, for example, Ben and Jerry's has always been very clear that their corporate social responsibility is to contribute to the environment and humanity. As architectural practices, we don't all have that same language. But again, going back to younger people who are going Mm -hmm. to be looking at, you know, the potential of, of you know, being employed by one of the firms that in our industry, they look at corporate social responsibility and they, they look at what is your commitment to doing something more than making money. And, and that's what that, what resonates with them. And so to be honest with you, I've been working with my clients around that corporate social responsibility. And for, I would say the vast majority of them, 80% or so, they really resonate with the idea of humanity, being an architect for humanity and around equality and justice, at least our clients. But I've worked with other clients who said, you know, really our our cause, our corporate social responsibility is homelessness or poverty. And that's fine, too, because that addresses another issue in the continuum. Do you feel that the focus on on the the human part of your business tends to lead to financial gains as well? Are the two tied together or is it is it more of a uh, compartmentalization of, you know, being good and separately running a business to generate as much profit as possible? I think they're absolutely tied. They're absolutely tied because we are we are a business that is based 100% on intellectual capital and people. As a sidebar, I do believe that it's some Point. This is really at the top of the funnel, like way at the top of the funnel. We are going to have to look at our cost models, our pricing models, and look very carefully at how we price. Because quite frankly, the whole model that we use right now, whether we use time and materials or hourly rates or whatever, is really based on a very old kind of manufacturing Mm -hmm. concept where Mm -hmm. you get the lower rung of the food chain, which is the cheapest rung of the food chain, to do as much work as possible for the lowest rate. That's the model. You can pivot that model and integrate it into design build or any other delivery system, but for all intents and purposes, that's kind of sort of how we come up with our pricing. But as other industries have shown us, if we treat people more equitably, they do tend to stay longer. And so mm-hmm. we're going to need to start to look at, you know, what does a revenue share model look like? Something similar to an Uber or a Lyft model, or what do value-based pricing models look like? And does that incentivize people to stay? Because we are sharing more and reinvesting in other areas. I do think that's a philosophical conversation that happens at the top of the funnel, certainly not at the bottom, but for me is completely aspirational because we have to get to a place where it is about the people. I mean, we're already at a place where it's about the people, but in order to 
to continue as a profession, I believe that's so incredibly, incredibly important. Do you find that that, that value of, of, uh, of being good for the people that, that you work with is something that comes naturally to a lot of business owners, or is that something that they have to really work towards? I think it depends on the firm. It really does because that that's a culture question. It's, you know, there, we advise a lot of different kinds of businesses and some of them are truly lifestyle businesses. In other words, they were created to provide only valuable value and income to their single owner or owners in those particular situations. They don't necessarily care. I won't say don't care, but being good isn't uh, as impactful, let's say, because it's, it's a lifestyle. It was created in order to feed me. Now, in the long run, is that sustainable? For a lot of lifestyle businesses, maybe not. Um, for some, it may be. But I do think that because we are a, an industry of people and we value their ideas and their innovation, it is absolutely incumbent upon us to find ways in which we share that value and not just make it about ourselves. So I've got one last question uh, before we finish today. Uh, we are, we're kind of deep within this, this crisis that COVID has brought us. And, and during this time, you know, we've dealt with equality issues and economic issues, health issues. It has been widely discussed that when we come out of this, whenever that is, the goal is not to just come out of this as as good as as you know in a in a position that is as good as as we were in before we fell into this crisis. But we need to we need to come out of this in a better position. What is your ideal view on how our industry can can be better coming out of this out of this uh, this crisis that 2020 has brought us? Oh. And this is going to be recorded, huh? <laughs> wow. Well, that, that's, a, that's a setup question, man. <laughs> I really, this won't apply to everyone, but I, I do think it is um, uh, probably true for a lot of firms. How do I want you to be better? I want desire for firms to be more introspective, to look more deeply at what they actually do for the communities that they serve. Do they really truly listen? Do they really truly engage? Do they really truly engage and value their employees and their contributions? I want there to be on the other side of this far more introspection about whether or not we actually do that or we just say it in a mission and vision statement and then really to walk it out. I want there to be more authenticity around the industry, what we all experience and, and experience differently, quite frankly, because the struggles and challenges of people of color are not the same as people of our indigenous people. And all, all of us do not experience uh, race and racism in a monolithic way. So I would hope there would be perspective that uh, we are all on a beach ball. We're all a color on the beach ball, but that we twirl the beach ball around to really truly see the beauty of each one of those colors and their contributions and not just see the ball itself. So on the other side of this, I hope uh, my expectation is that we don't go back to being so myopic that we don't really truly learn from this experience, learn from the oppression and the frustration that has grown from the social unrest or the pandemic um, or the economic hardships, but that we take that and look more deeply at how do we evolve as practices? Because I think that that, that time is now. Agreed. Amen. Very much agreed. Well, on that note, I'd like to, I'd really like to thank you for joining us today. It, it has been an incredibly insightful conversation for me. Um, I and I know for for our listeners, I I envy your clients. They're it, it's they're, they're very lucky to have have you in their corner. And the 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 vodcast is has just been 
great. I'm so glad that you and Gabrielle have been have spearheaded that. Uh, for our listeners out there, the the title of the podcast is Breaking the Silence of Design. You can view it on YouTube, and there will be a link to to the podcast in our show notes. Yeah, thank you so much. Karen, for joining us. Karen, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much. We really Thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much for even inviting me. Thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and for all those listening, Karen will also be joining us on a panel coming up in the coming weeks. So stay tuned on, on our Connect for that for more information about that. It's part of our series of panel events that we are doing with Parade. And Donna, you'll also be joining us on a panel coming up soon on on mentorship. So really excited to speak to both of you guys uh, on Zoom. There's going to be some visuals included as well. So beyond <laughs> just the audio format of this, this podcast. All right. All right. Thank you. Take care, Karen. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. And that concludes this episode. Thanks to Karen Compton for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for this podcast, please reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thank you, and we will talk to you next time.